Are you curious how to get your money to go a little bit further? Well, we're going to cover that and more in today's show. Residency can be such a letdown when it comes to building your financial foundation, but it truly doesn't have to be that way. If you're a physician wanting to take control over your financial future and take back the freedom you deserve, come hang out with this money nerd. No long hours or sleepless nights. Just you, me, and the Financial Residency Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Inman, and welcome back to a brand new season. We are here season two. That's right. We're kicking it off with a bang. Our guest today is a huge deal in the world of personal finance. He's the creator and co-host of what Kiplinger called the best financial podcast. I'd agree. Which, of course, is the Stacky and Benjamin show. His wife, Cheryl, is a pediatrician, and he's the father of twins. That's right. He's one of us, and he totally gets it. It's nice to have friends, isn't it? Anyway, we want to focus our show on how we can make your money go a little bit further, especially those in the lower paying specialties or fields, uh, you know, peds. So we navigated through that minefield of debt repayment and how to live life while tackling the debt to geographic arbitrage and even threw in some cash flow planning hacks for you. It's an action-packed show, so let's jump right in and welcome Joe Salcihai and get this party started. Joe, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you here. I can't believe I finally made it on. I mean, that blood test at the end to get on this show, I thought might have been a little bit much, but besides that, it's yeah, great. You passed. It's okay. <laughs> that is good. No infectious diseases? Well, none that I'm going to tell you about. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Find out later. No big deal. So Joe, today we're going to talk about some super fun stuff. I've been getting a lot of comments in the Facebook group about how some of the show relates to some of the higher paying specialties. So I thought today we're going to jump right in and talk about some of the specialties and fields that other physicians are in that are maybe lower paying and how we could help them stretch their money to go a little bit further. I think these tips actually will apply to everybody, whether you're in a higher paying specialty or a lower paying general practice thingy like uh, my spouse is. My wife, Cheryl, is a pediatrician. You know, you don't get into pediatrics because you're looking for the highest paying thing. Like yeah. when we got to that point during residency. She's like, I'm going to be a pediatrician. And I'm like, oh, cool. That's good. Let's look at that up at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And you go, oh. Oh, well. I, had to, I had to scroll all the way to the bottom. <laughs> I know. And that tells us a lot about how we treat the future of our youth, doesn't it? But by the same token, my wife is the child whisperer. You hand her a baby and kid immediately stops screaming. It's just amazing. She's doing what she loves. I'm sitting here talking to you, which is what I love. But anything that applies to our family is the same stuff that applies to our friends that are in one of my best friends is a radiologist. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because he often overlooks some of these easy money-saving opportunities. And I always ask him, Mike, why are you, why are you passing this by? Money's the same for everybody. And I get that sometimes there's big rocks and sometimes there's little tiny pebbles. Mm -hmm. Some of these things that we'll talk about are so easy for everybody to implement that whether you're on the lower end of the pay scale or the high, high end of the pay scale, it works for everyone. Yeah. And sometimes when doctors kind of rationalize and say, well, like, oh, I bill out a crazy hour. Like, why would I worry about negotiating $5 here or there on certain bills or certain things? But that's an extra, you know, a couple bucks here and there that you could use to do something you really enjoy. So, yeah. Why waste it? You know, I exactly. mean, you were blessed with this gift to be able to do this thing that other people either can't do or don't have the fortitude to go through all of the things that you went through to get there. Why, why build that empire and then say, well, I'm going to waste money just because I can. Mm -hmm. it, just, it just doesn't, doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. It mentally is, I guess, not logical, if you will, uh, in that <laughs> yeah. sense. So, all right, let's jump right in. Let's talk. So I think the first thing we can kind of go over is, is cash flow planning or the ugly B word of budgeting. Mm -hmm. I necessarily don't love the, obviously love the word budgeting. And even with clients, I, I tend to say, Hey, budgeting is like today looking backward. And usually when we look backwards, we're like, Oh crap, I can't believe I spent this much in entertainment versus what I had budgeted. And I don't know, every time I kind of go through this, it's, there's a lot of negative emotion around budgeting and people, it's kind of like the fat diets. They start it and then all of a sudden it's like, ah, screw it. This is too much work. Yeah, well, we do. We look at it as constraints and yeah. it's funny because it actually is what sets us free. Once we know that it's inside the budget, it's all bets are off. 
Like I, Hey, I can do as long as I don't spend above X, I can do whatever the hell I want. If I spend more than that, then a month from now or two months from now, or however long it's going to take me to pay off this debt, I'm going to be a slave to this. And I don't want to, I don't want to do that. So, uh, yeah, the budget sets you free. Yeah. And, and, and so I actually look at it going forward, kind of like forecasting in a business, right. Or cash flow planning saying, what do we expect to pay? And maybe use some bumpers for some of the older uh, expenses, but I'm, I'm not overanalyzing kind of the past stuff. I'm more looking forward and saying, Hey, what do I expect to pay for these services or these things? And try to take some of the big annual stuff, like let's call an insurance premium and, and bring it out monthly. So we can kind of look at what we expect. Ideally, it'd be nice to say, Hey, if my credit card bill is below X amount, check it for fraud and I'm done. That is. So I'd like to kind of chat on, you know, what are some of the ways that people could look at their expenses and maybe a different light or, or to maybe stretch their money a little bit further and with respects to budgeting or cash flow planning? Well, to your point, it's, it's all about mindset. And I love this mindset idea that you bring up about looking at your money as if you're a company, because I think we make different decisions if we look at us as Inman Incorporated or Salsi High Incorporated, because most of us, we do a great job of making these perfectly logical decisions in the workplace. And then we come home and we get all flipping emotional <laughs> about mm -hmm. our money. No, I don't like that. So I just did this stupid thing. Well, why? Well, you know, because personal finance is personal. Yeah, but apply a little math and think if you think about yourself as a company, also you start thinking about what's my long term goal so that I know what goal I'm working toward. And then because that budget is going to be based around your goal. If you don't have any really expensive long term goals, you spend more money today. If you got huge long-term goals, then you constrict the budget for today so that you have more for that, for that future goal. So I love that as a beginning point. I think though, as much as that speaks to, okay, we need some spreadsheets. What it really mm -hmm. speaks to, to me is that budgets are about communication as much as anything. Mm -hmm. I think that the problem that I saw when I was a financial planner and the problem you probably see when you counsel people is this in most families that I worked with, one person knew where every penny was buried and the other person was in this place we call fantasy land where everything's just going to be okay. And my spouse is looking at it and I don't have to worry about it. And what's bad is that that works fine as long as the money's fine. But when there's this little pinch and things aren't going right the first time, then something bad happens and one spouse looks at the other. Usually it's one in fantasy land that goes, well, you're the one taking care of this. How come we're not okay? And the other person gets all offended who is looking at every penny and they've taken on that burden. They then, because they're offended, look back and say, well, why the hell haven't you paid attention to it? And now you can already see now the fight is gone. And now we have a money discussion we don't want to have. So what Cheryl and I did when we realized that we were in this cycle ourselves, because we're parents of twins, busy people, both of us full-time careers, just going 9,000 miles an hour, like a lot of the people listening. It was important for us when the kids were sleeping on a, for us, it was on a Sunday afternoon, every week, every week we'd have a money meeting. Okay. And, and, and you know what? That sounds, Ryan, that sounds pretty boring. Uh, let me tell you our money meeting. We put on some cool music. We'd pour ourselves a glass of wine and we'd get fired up about the money meeting because mm -hmm. all we do, and it was very quick, we go through all of the expenses that week together. So we pull up the banking app and now we pull up a clarity money app. We look through the expenses really quickly and then we say, boy, cell phone bills that much. I wonder why that is. And we just assign it to one another. Cheryl would say, I'll look at that or I'll say, I'll look at it. Our utility bill looks really weird this month. And all you're doing is scanning. And then you say, I'll take care of this. I'll take care of that. Then we went and looked at what's going on the next week. Like what expenses do we have that are coming up? That was important because sometimes Cheryl would come home with kids, uh, clothes for school mm -hmm. and she'd walk in the door with these bags. And I had already bought other stuff that week for the house and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. yeah, we're both trying to take care of stuff, but she's on one plane and I'm on the other. So instead to avoid that, it's just, Hey, what if what's coming up the next week in our family? Well, we got to get this kid's school clothes. Oh, okay. I was going to get this thing for the ducks. So I'm going to have that taken care of in two weeks. Great. Fantastic. And then about once a month, we'd look at our investments together. Most of the time doing nothing, as you know, was the best thing, but we'd look at the investments then once a month. 
that would not only solve a lot of those fights, but on the positive part, what it did was it made it so that then as we're driving down the road, we started having these bigger conversations about money, like what our beliefs are. Like we didn't start there. Mm -hmm. These came because we got through all the crap and now we're on these big, cool ideas. And and where do we want to go with our life as a family? What's our family mission statement? So I think that the family money meeting, pretty powerful. And if you can have it once a week, that's the way to do it. I love it. And I don't know if you did this on purpose or not, but I had El Martinez on and we talked about a money date. And eventually I was like, okay, El, like I'm going to be that guy. Is the money date where I'm just pulling up a spreadsheet and being like, honey, come look, <laughs> do all this. And she, we kind of went into it. So if you guys haven't heard it, go back and check out the show with El on uh, really how to be financially frisky uh, with your spouse and, and go on a money date. <laughs> so I, I, I think it's cool that you, you guys did that. But that's also, no, I didn't do that on purpose, but I love L too. But the thing that's funny is, as you say that, I'm reminded of something that Tony Robbins said once, which is if you hear advice once, it might be that quirky person's little thing. Mm -hmm. But if you keep hearing experts say the same thing over and over and over, that might be a truth. Mm -hmm. And I think that this idea of conversations over spreadsheets, definitely a truth. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay, so now we've had our money date. You said it's leading into bigger conversations when you're driving down the road, road trips, traveling, whatever it might be. How can we help listeners figure out the priorities in terms of their spending? Yeah. Most people look at this backwards, I believe, which is we start off with thinking about clipping coupons. Maybe I'll go to Verizon and cut out my Verizon and go with the cheap internet or the cheap uh, wireless instead. Maybe I'll cut the cord on my cable. Okay. Those are great. Those are not your biggest expenses. Mm -mm. If you work, generally work from the top down, and I'll tell you the big three the way I look at it. Number one, your housing expense is always your biggest expense in your family. Well, if it's, it might not be, but if it's not, you might want to rethink. Your, if your car costs more than your house, maybe maybe your priorities are different. Unless you're about. living in your Tesla. <laughs> right. <laughs> or in a van down by the river. Yeah. No big deal. One or the other. So you're, you're living, is there something we can do around our house, around our housing that we can do on one end, you've got these people that do like Airbnb where when they're gone, they'll rent out part of their house, or maybe they have spare bedrooms and they'll rent out, rent out rooms. Some people aren't comfortable with that, but if you are, Hey, that's some great side income. You can use it as your pay off the mortgage early fund. Somebody else stays in these bedrooms and pays off your mortgage for you. How great is that? The second one is your auto expense, your cost of transportation. So what can we do there? And it's funny because some people listening might say, well, you know what? I'm a doctor. I need to drive a, I need to drive a nice new car so people know that I'm successful. Welcome to the stereotype. Yeah, I don't think that's true anymore. I mean, I think that's more between your ears than it is between your patient's ears. I don't think your patients look at you driving a 200,000 mile car and go, the, the, that woman doesn't know how to diagnose anything. I, mean, I, I don't think yeah. they do. I think there's something cool about being the the frugal doctor. So yeah, driving a car with some miles on it, not a bad thing. Not leasing cars. I see doctors all the time lease a car. Leasing cars makes sense for some professions. I don't think unless you're somebody that is in a profession where your car is a part of the sale. Like as an example, a real estate agent. Yeah, I was going to say a real estate agent. Yeah, immediately they come to mind. Or yeah, they should probably lease their car. But for a physician going to the same place every day, leasing a car might not be a great idea. You'd have to kind of sell me on that one. Mm -hmm. So to really summarize, when you look, look backwards, start off with your housing expenses and how can we make those more efficient? And then number two is how can we make our transportation costs less? The third one is... What can we do tax-wise to get rid of a lot of the friction in our tax situation? A lot of people, especially physicians, will sometimes – so I'll give you our personal situation. My wife is in this a nearly 100-doctor multi-specialty clinic that she works in. Twice a year, they get their partnership payout. So we live in a world where her paycheck, our living arrangement is – a pretty tight budget for six months. And then we get this bam, huge infusion of money twice a year. Because of that, it becomes imperative to figure out what to do with that money to make sure that it's deployed in a way that A, isn't, ooh, twice a year we blow a bunch of cash. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because a lot of people do that in a boom bust cycle like We're this. We're going is. to Africa. Yeah. Yeah, we're doing this crazy, crazy thing because I got money. And then it's all gone a month later. You're like, oh, can't wait for five months from now when I get the next one. Mm -hmm. Don't want to live that way. But the second thing is, if you just leave that money sitting in cash, 
or you invest it just in a regular brokerage account like a lot of people do, well, now you're paying tax on the capital gains, you're paying tax on the dividends. So instead, what we do is we make sure that we max out the 401k, we max out the HSA during the year. And sometimes what that means is we may even run a little bit of a deficit during that time frame. And I've got to live off of some of that six month cash mm-hmm. that from the time before and use that to supplement the budget to make sure that as we invest money, we're putting as much of it in tax shelters as we can so that we get rid of that bite. I see a lot of people pay way too much money in tax just because they don't pay attention to the taxability of the investment. Yeah, I think that's great. And this is why personal finance is personal, right? What works for you might not work for me uh, and, and vice versa, but it's fascinating to see how another physician family lives and how they work. I mean, we're pretty similar in what we do. You were an advisor. I am an advisor. Wife's a pediatrician. My wife is a specialist of a pediatrician. And, you know, what worked for you might not work for me, but it's it's just it's fascinating to see the back and forth. Yeah. So a uh, couple of things to on your on your recap. So you were talking about the kind of the big three. And I, I think one of the ones that we didn't include here was student debt. And mm-hmm. and a lot of misconceptions or 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 problems I see around that. Are, is student debt a thing? I mean, I don't know. My average client has 283000 so maybe does, a thing. Does anybody have, I haven't read anything about student debt. Yeah. I don't think we have a $2 trillion student debt problem in this country, do you? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. The funny thing is like, if you actually <laughs> add in like, it, uh, that's like the reported number, but then you think like, there's other ways to do it, whether instead of just either leaving it in the federal program or refinancing, if your parents have a paid off house and they can get a HELOC for three and a half percent. It's a lot cheaper oh, yeah. than you going and refinancing your debt somewhere else. Now, obviously, your parents have to trust you and all that. I'm assuming that would be good. But the $2 trillion in student debt like doesn't even include all the creative financing that actually happened or off-the-books financing. So I think we actually have a real big problem. But kind of getting back on it. So it's one of the, the big three, I think, are in there. And one of the things that, that could make you go further is if you aren't pl- working for a 501c3 and you're not going for public service loan forgiveness, you should look at refinancing. This is not the best option for everyone, but I've seen clients literally knock hundreds, if not even a thousand dollars off their monthly payment with a shorter payment. Because like I was looking at my wife's loans a while, a while back and her average, like weighted average was like 7% on her student yeah. debt. Like when we refinanced, it was like sub 4% paying the same amount, like in terms of debt load, but just getting a better loan um, saved us. So that allows us to stretch money. One thing you mentioned on uh, cars and car insurance, I think was fascinating. And I, I kind of looked at it and was like, you know, I moved back from Vegas to San Diego. I'd be a hypocrite if I didn't actually go and like price out some of the insurances moving back, right? I tell clients all the time, hey, let's see if we can get this lower. It doesn't hurt. It takes a little time. So what I do, I, and I'm going to sound like a commercial and this is not meant to be, but I saved more than 15% you know, in 15 minutes or less on Geico. <laughs> Cause I, I, I had state farm. We've had it for like 20 years and I literally saved like 50% coming back. And it like blew my mind on the savings. And this is something I've priced out every few years, but for some reason the rates went up in Vegas, 24 hour town uh, and all sorts of stuff. I know different laws, but then coming back to San Diego, it was crazy. So that could help you stretch your money. Oh, absolutely. We are moving um, we're actually halfway through the move. We gave ourselves six months to sell our house and we sold it in two days. So that worked out in our favor in two ways. Number one is we don't have that mortgage payment. Number two is all of our stuff is in a pot and we're living in a really, really cheap three room apartment over my friend's dad's garage right now for the next five months. But the, until the next part of our life begins moving up in the world from below (laughs) ground to above ground. From basement to the second floor, baby. Oh, boy. (laughs) But So I had to do renter's insurance. Let me tell you the delta, the difference between two different renter's policies. We went with the local person first, and we asked them for a quote. And the price on renter's insurance for us, and we only have one thing that needed to be a special rider, uh, Cheryl's ring. Mm -hmm. That's all that we need a special rider. Very typical. It was going to be $1,800 for that insurance. $1,800 a year for renter's insurance for us. We went then, so that's through, uh, uh, well, we'll just call it because they lost, uh, <laughs> losing company a, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Through a firm that you've heard of, let's put it this way. Okay. And then I went through one of the new FinTech firms out there, which mm. has a great track record already. And if you look into them, I'm really excited about what they do called lemonade. 
And so I went through lemonade. Lemonade was $750 a year. That's considerable <laughs> difference, like almost a hundred a month. Half, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was amazing. It was amazing that it was less than half. So to your point, evaluating your insurances, I think is a big thing. And you know, what's funny to your earlier point though, structuring your debt effectively, not just the student loans, but let's, let's take a look at, at, at an example. If you're somebody who's saddled with student loans and cash flow is tight because of those student loan payments and you go take out a home mortgage, I think you have to be a little strategic about the mortgage that you take. A lot of people don't like debt, so they immediately go for the 15-year loan. And I really think that especially a physician starting out should consider the 30-year loan not to stretch the amount of house you can buy which a lot of people are prone to do, right? Well, you know, once again, I got to live the stereotype, so I got to buy this big house. I don't want to do it that way. I want to move into as much house as I could afford for the payment on a 15-year loan, but make it a 30 so that payment's less, and then take the money for the 15 that you were going to put into the mortgage. And this is a hack, and also, once again, being personal. For most people out there, with a 15-year time frame, Take that extra money and instead of putting it toward your mortgage, make an automatic payment into like an S&P 500 mutual fund. Hmm. And that does two different things. Number one is this is your pay the house off early money. And historically over 15 year periods of time, you've almost nearly always beaten the interest rate you have on your house. And now you don't even pay it off in 15 years. You pay it off closer to 11 years. So you knock years off that mortgage by doing that. The second thing, though, is if things get really tight, like they do, especially with, with young physicians, maybe just out of college with bundles of student debt and something comes up that you didn't expect, you don't have to go try to requalify for an easier loan than that 15-year. You just stop that automatic payment, and now you've got the, the flexibility of the 30-year loan. By the way, don't do that if you're not going to put the extra money into that S&P 500 fund Thank and you. you're just going to make the smaller because all you're doing is stringing out your debt for a hell of a long period. You screw yourself if, if you don't do the whole package of what I'm talking about. But I like that hack too. Go with the 30, make the 15-year payment, make them to two separate places. And by the way, if you're somebody that can't handle the ups and downs of the stock market, no matter what data tells you, just go ahead and pay it extra to the house. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a fascinating tip for those that have a little bit more aggressive risk tolerance. I think that's a, a really cool tip. Um, you know, kind of bringing back the house and being one of like the biggest costs. One of the things that we could look at, and this kind of goes along with salary and compensation and job and, and all that is, is geographic arbitrage. You yeah. know, what we did in theory was, as I was starting my firm, I was only about a year old when we moved uh, about two and a half years ago. And we moved to Vegas. And the thought was that it's cheap, way cheaper to live, like half or more of that cost than Southern California. I can continue working for my business, doing what I love, my passion. My wife could work in town. She'd be paid just as much, if not more, than she would in San Diego. It ended up not working perfectly, but she was actually able to do locums work and make a lot more money and work a lot less time uh, and spend time with the kids. But we were able to do kind of this geographic arbitrage where we lived in a different place and it wasn't ideal. I think if she was able to work there in our situation, long term, it, it would have been more ideal. But there's the, the option of this geographic. You go live in a more rural place where they need it. And you're, you know, even if you're a pediatrician, they might pay you 25% more or 50% more to go live in this area that you can spend five years and actually like get a really solid financial foundation on there. So I think kind of all these things mixing in. Do you have any thoughts on geographic arbitrage here? Well, yeah, we've done some headlines about some of these communities where uh, that will now pay you to come to their town. So if you're not adverse to living in a rural area that's begging for people, uh, some of them, I think a couple of these, w w there were some towns in Southern Ohio, in West Virginia. And I, and, no, hey, hey, easy, man. I'm, I'm sitting right here. Uh, <laughs> And then, uh, and by the way, everybody, it's because I'm moving back to Detroit. Uh, so, and they're not paying me, but yeah. Detroit's interesting. But anyway, North Dakota, I think uh, either North or South Dakota were, okay. were some of those places and another place in Iowa. But anyway, you could move to those places even if that fits your lifestyle. But even without that, you know, I think just being intentional about your life and where you want to live 
and structuring your budget around that area. Even if it's, you know, for some people, it's important for them to live close to the center of a lot of stuff. If you want to live in New York City, that's fine. But thinking I'm going to have a big apartment in Manhattan versus having a big apartment in Detroit mm-hmm. is, is going to be a whole different thing. So you can live in New York versus Detroit. You can spend the same amount of money. You just might have a smaller living space is the better idea. And I know this might be a little frustrating for someone listening that's like, oh, maybe we've already started and established or you know, hopefully that this is hitting some physicians early while they're in residency and just about to, to leave. But if you are established, I mean, this could be one way as tough and as hard of a decision it is to actually like pick up and move and do this. It's hard. I totally get it because you start getting established in what you're doing. You make connections and then your kids are going to school and all that. It's, it's really tough. But I think that this could be a huge game changer in terms of your finances. I got to tell you though, Ryan, I'm going to brag on my wife a little bit. So she was, they don't call it resident of the year, but she was resident of the year. There's an award for it. And so it has this doctor's name, but she was resident of the year at Children's Hospital in Detroit. Mm. And she was somebody that taught a lot of people through Wayne State University how to be a better doctor. She did that on the side. And so she was well known. She was very established. But after my kids were in eighth grade, we decided to move to Texarkana, Texas, much lower standard of living, easier place to live zero traffic issues. We went from hundreds of thousands of people to 60,000 people. It was just far, far easier. And it was great for us. It was fantastic. What was neat though was moving from a place that has a good pediatric record, like where she was from, to a more rural setting like we have in Texarkana. Giving that up was one thing, but when she came here, she was a badass. Like it was oh, yeah. almost like the stranger coming into town that knows everything. And it was, it, it was actually kind of funny because at first they kind of treated her like the new resident that didn't know anything. And immediately, because my wife's very affable and very fun, she kind of slaps you around without letting you know she's slapping you around. And afterwards you leave with a smile on your face and you go, oh my God, she just told me that she knew more about that than I did. And I'm got a big smile on my face. Like yeah. I didn't even realize that. So very quickly, she was able to grow her practice. And it was funny because people even called her locally. She has this nickname, the hippie doctor. Okay. And, and the reason they call her the hippie doctor is because every doctor here in town prescribes a pill to the farmers out here. If you got a problem, they prescribe a pill. And a friend of mine who is an internist, he said, listen, I prescribe a pill because it's what they want. And I'm thinking to myself, that's they don't need a pill. He's like, yeah, but you don't understand. They're just going to go down to the emergency clinic and go get the pill if I don't get it for them. Like two days are going to go by after I tell them, listen, this is going to run its course and they'll go get a pill anyway. Mm-hmm. And I still think that's kind of cynical. But Cheryl would say, hey, so your kid's not pooping. Every pediatrician knows what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. K-Rose. Just give them some syrup and create a slip and slide and it works. And so she had all of these all of these not big time homeopathic stuff, just these little things, you know, when you didn't need a pill and, uh, they started calling her the hippie doctor, but now she's like this super popular doctor in town that everybody wants to go to mostly because of her personality, but also because she came here and she already knew what she was doing. She knew how to deal with people and it was really neat. So I wouldn't be as afraid, I think of making that move. I guess my point is Mm. as some people might be. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Like real life example of how it can work. And it's tough. I know it's tough to think about picking up and moving and everything, but to make that dollar go further, I think that's a a great point. And, you know, while we're on it with pediatricians and kids and you've got two of them, you know, can we talk a little bit on kids are expensive. So how could we still provide and kind of keep everything manageable in terms of like kid expense? You have any, you have any ways to stretch the dollar further there? It depends on the age of your kids. I'll tell you this, when my twins were young, the mistakes that we made initially was that we thought everything had to be new. And if you're having your first child and you think that your kid needs everything new, you'll find out with kid number two that hand-me-downs are awesome and they really don't matter if they're somebody else's and your kids can outgrow the stuff very quickly anyway. So if we had it to do over again and we hadn't had two kids at once, I would tell new parents out there, if you're into the name brands, visit thrift shops. Uh, And as your kids grow up, just think about what the important highlights of, of your life and what areas aren't as important. Like for us, travel was pretty important, including our kids and travel was important. 
So we had a pretty strict food budget at home. We didn't go out to eat a ton. We instead took our kids to Southeast Asia for three weeks when they were 17. When they were eight, we went out of the country for the first time to England and Scotland. We thought that was pretty fun. My kids have traveled all over the place, but we it was a trade-off. Mm-hmm. You know, We would have this family fun. The other thing is, the quicker you're able to teach your kids the value of a dollar, the better off you're all going to be. Kids don't get it. You know, this whole idea, I sound like my dad now, where money doesn't grow on trees, damn That's it. That's it works. <laughs> not, know? I'm planting one of these at the new house. Money, money doesn't grow on trees. What do you do with that? You know, but the quicker your kids learn about how dollars work, we would, we would include our kids sometimes in our family weekly meeting, getting back to that weekly meeting. Okay. And we started playing a game called the utility game. And, and specifically the electricity game. And here's the reason why, Ryan, because you're going to find this out, buddy. Oh, boy. Is, is that I would come home from work. So our agreement in our household were two nights a week. It was like I didn't exist. I would work before my kids got up to well after dark. And those were Cheryl's short days. And so she took care of the kids stuff. The other three days, I would take them to school. I'd be home by then. Mm. So we had our family dynamic. On those two days, the way this all started was Joe would come home and my house looked like flipping Disneyland because I'd, I'd drive in and every light in the entire house was on. We had three televisions and every damn TV was on. And guess how many people were watching those, Ryan? None. Nobody. Yeah. Everybody's in the backyard. I'm like, are you kidding me? What is this about? So instead of yelling and screaming, which never works, we turned it into a game and I got some graph paper and we started with the utility bill in month one. And here's the utility bill. And we went around the house and I showed my twins how, starting at age eight, how can we make this lower? We can make this lower by doing this, by wearing sweaters and keeping the heater lower, you know, the thermostat, like we mm-hmm. talked about thermostat work. By the way, not a great idea teaching your kids how thermostat works because that can become a war. So I wouldn't do that part again. But then keeping lights mm-hmm. off. And then, it, and then it became this, the battle became instead of me against my kids, it was every month when that utility bill hit, how low can we go? And the whole family was behind it. And it was pretty fun. We didn't even have any prizes for winning. I was going to say, what was the reward? Because like, I know the reward for you is like savings, but like, what was the reward for them? <laughs> no, it was just, it was a high five. It's, hey, we're all in this together. And guess right. what we did, man? We made that $4 lower. How do you think we could have made it lower this month than that? What can we do next month that we didn't do this month? Mm-hmm. And just treating them like they were team members on the team instead of, damn it, turn the TV off worked so much better. Yeah, it makes totally sense. And you'd said there's a trade-off, right? With how can you get things lower? And I look at it as like, you can assign a dollar, like one job. And what is that job? And is it doing its highest and best use? And when I think of highest and best use is, does it make you the happiest? Like, what are you spending your money on? Is this truly making you happy? Or is this kind of you just going through life? I always try to get for ourselves and with clients, I'm always saying, let's stop, let's review this and say, are my spending in line with what really makes me happy? And for some people, it might be a bigger house. For some people, it might be a small house, but a, you know, a brand new truck. It doesn't matter what it is. Just make sure that it's in line and that you're giving the dollars the values that you assign in terms of happiness. And uh, I love it. that callback, by the way. You know, we talked about what a waste of money leasing a car is. I mean, I don't want to sign any judgment. If leasing a car is you're happy, And that's what you want to do is just have a brand new car all the time. And you get the fact that it's a less efficient way to do it. Great. Go do it. Just realize what the trade-off is elsewhere. If you're conscious about where you're happy is, I totally, that's awesome. Yeah. You lease a car and that's your thing. Like, Hey, maybe you take less trips or maybe you eat out less. Yeah. Something gives, right? You you obviously, you don't want to run a deficit every month. Uh, That'd be terrible. You need to be investing and doing other things, but you know, assign the dollar to what makes you happiest. So Joe, to kind of wrap this out, I always like to do a little segment, curbside consult. Today, our biggest forced fan on a financial residency, my wife, uh, had a question for you. And she wanted me to ask you for some tips at each stage of life, resident, new attending, kind of pre-retiree, like how does this work? And, and I said, I was looking at her, I was like, really, why do you want to know that? And she goes, basically, I just want to know at what point can we relax a little? And I was like, hmm. Are you getting at something here or do you really want to know, like have Joe ask this? So there's the question. Feel free to answer. Try not to blast me, please. (laughs) I'll try not to. Residency. I like this idea of getting your 
budget and your lifestyle in order. I mean, when Cheryl was in residency and I happened to be starting my financial planning career at the very same time, which I wouldn't advise anybody to do. That's what I did. (laughs) We lived in a little apartment and you know, what's cool. We took up bird watching. We took up hiking. We played board games as a family. And some of those things that we do now, well, as a family, the two of us, uh, we watched the Detroit Tigers together on a Friday night on TV. Those things that we did are still things that we like to do today. And we remembered our frugal hobbies because as money got more plentiful over time, and it will, if you're Mm -hmm. in residency, at some point it will, we went with what you're talking about, what makes us happy. And now a hike makes us every bit as happy as uh, other things. In fact, this is just a side note. We have these friends who are all physicians, and we went on a trip with them last year to France. And I had, in some ways, and I apologize, guys, if you're listening to this, in some ways, I had the time ever. And, uh, and excuse me, but it totally was just a rotten time in some ways. And the way it was rotten was there were things that we did that we only did because they were really expensive. We did one of those Michelin star restaurant meals. And what was amazing was, was that Cheryl and I didn't want to do it, not because we didn't have the money, but because it wasn't important to us. We got forced into it by the rest of the group, like shamed into it. We did it. And then the people that said we had to do it ranted afterwards about how much they hated it. And by the way, I found out since then it happens all the time. We just spend money because we have it because we have it. We do this expensive stuff and then we complain about how much we hate it. So the frugal stuff we do not because it's frugal, but because I dig a good hike, Mm. you know? So set those, think about those priorities. What do you love when you're in residency? Cause I think those same things are things that, that are going to still make you happy later on. Then when you first get into practice, you need to make sure that you have locked in your automatic savings plans mm-hmm. because money is going to be still tighter then than it's ever been before. You're going to look at people that have more money than you have. They're constantly going to be on you to start taking expensive vacations, buy expensive cars, have expensive hobbies, uh, live in an expensive neighborhood, lock in your savings first and then make those expenses and don't feel like you need to live this lifestyle that's over your head because the quicker you avoid that, the longer you're going to live that lifestyle and it won't be over your head. Like if you're really attracted to the more expensive community, the more expensive car, the quote richer lifestyle, the only way to get it is to lock it in early. Otherwise you're going to be living a life of debt for the rest of your life just to just to look the the, the point. And if you don't believe me, read The Millionaire Next Door because yep. all that dude does is rips on doctors and how none of them are rich and about how it's the plumber who's rich. So yeah. we actually had Sarah Fala on the show uh, back earlier this year and talking all about the key behavior things uh, based on the book and her many years of research and excited for her book that's coming out the end of this year. Uh, oh, it's beautiful. So, yeah, we'll yeah. definitely make sure we link it in the show notes. No, that's awesome. And everybody should look at her work because it will put you in check is <laughs> exactly, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. And then uh, later on in terms of relaxing, I don't know that you relax. Sorry, Mrs. Hitman. I don't know that you relax as much as you get used to this lifestyle and, and making the trade-offs of what may, I mean, your whole life's about trade-offs. And the bad news is, is when you stop making the trade-offs, There have been weeks at a time where we go out to dinner almost every night. And you know what happens? You get fatter. You feel worse. You don't appreciate it. And so it's funny. We cut back to one meal out a week together. And I love it more. It's a special night. We don't pay as much attention to what the bill is at the end of the night. We go ahead and have the expensive glass of wine each. Maybe two. Getting crazy. Right? When they say dessert menu, we might go, yes, let's have a look. Because yeah, we can afford that one meal out and it's special. And when we did that more often, just because we wanted to relax more, it didn't end up being great. So I think, I think later on, it's more about getting used to the, and getting more philosophical about your life because at some point money, money doesn't become the driver anymore. And the bad news is for some physicians, Ryan, what I saw this lead to was depression. Mm Mm-hmm. You spent your whole life trying to get enough money that you could relax. And then you realize money's never going to be a problem for you anymore. And that's when drinking happens for some of my friends. For some other friends, I we have a board game night at my house every other week. My friends are either financial advisors or physicians. 
and uh, just because of Cheryl and my work. There was one guy who was a physician that came to our game night who is an anesthesiologist. He's no longer in town mm-hmm. who clearly had been sampling the goods before he came to game night. And it, and it was really scary. And he was going through a divorce and it was a mess. And part of that was just this ennui of what am I living for? Mm-hmm. What am I doing? So I think you got to become more philosophical later on because it's not about money. It's about your profession, your life. You know, what are you here for? So that's the third stage. That's awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate it. I think that was really great advice and real world examples from, you know, someone who's married to a pediatrician has seen it, has been there, is doing it, is kicking ass. Uh, so I, I appreciate it for the 1% of the population who doesn't know about your award-winning show. Can you just <laughs> let them know a little bit about you and what you're up to and the fact that you're out of the basement now, which is pretty cool. Yeah, we have this uh, show stacking Benjamins, which is the light side of personal finance where you go deeply into issues. And I really appreciate, Ryan, what you do here. Our show gets in trouble if we go deep ever. Our (laughs) goal is not to be the last word. Our goal is surround sound. It's to make these conversations, have these conversations like you'll have about maybe your favorite sports team or maybe you'll have about movies. If we can make money that same conversation where it's light, it's enjoyable. I'm not really trying to get any nuggets. I'm just living it. Maybe maybe you grasp on to every show a breadcrumb that leads you to something you didn't know about before, some idea. So our goal is to put you in front of as many different concepts and ideas as possible and just have fun, playful discussions the whole time. That's what we do three days a week at Stacking Benjamins. But the bigger thing is we're actually leaving the basement. Oh, hey oh. Yeah, which is exciting. We've had people tell us, like we started having these meetups and you'll be doing this more often, Ryan, as, as, as your show gets older, you start having meetups because you just know people around the country. You're mm-hmm. like, hey, why don't we meet? By the way, the first place I met people that were fans of ours was at Denali. Like, the, oh, really? there, there was a breakfast restaurant and these guys work in a coal mine, like down the street from Denali National Park. And I met them for breakfast after their all night shift. They were the first people listening to our show that I ever met. And so. I'm sure they were so excited to meet you. They're like, I just worked all night and now I get to look at Joe and, oh gosh. <laughs> Hashtag dream. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Living no. the dream. No, I don't think so. <laughs> it, it was a, yeah, that's right. It was a thrill for all of us. Yeah, right. But people kept saying to us as our meetups got bigger, they'd say, oh, so you can do the show? Like, well, no, I'm not going to do the show. And they'd say, but your show's perfect for like a live thing. Yep. And we, OG and I put our heads together and we're like, you know not only is it made for live shows, but we can actually do some of the visual humor instead of our show being a bunch of dumb dad jokes that are all audio jokes. We There's can such do- thing as a dumb dad joke? What? <laughs> yeah. I, I shouldn't have said dumb. <laughs> <laughs> some awesome dad humor. There you go. Uh, we, we can now do some visual stuff. So uh, we're going to be in three cities. You're going to get two podcasts for the price of one because we have an opening show that's about 15 minutes long in each city. Bloom helped us sponsor it. They're lending us Chris Costello, their founder, who's been on our show a million times, and he's mm-hmm. hilarious. And we, I would say he wouldn't know what he's getting into, Ryan, but he totally knows oh boy. what he's getting into. And it's going to be awesome. We're going to have people in each community that are experts from that community so that – and this is the thing. When I lived in Detroit, I didn't appreciate all the experts that were in Detroit. There's a lot of them. Yeah. And now I'm moving back there. And I know that people like Andy Hill, who you and I know are there. Kat Alford is there. Who's yep. awesome. She's been on your show too. Andy will be on uh, the show here in, in a couple of weeks after you. Yeah. Dorothea Kelly's there. Like we've got all these cool names that are there. We're going to bring all these people on and we're going to have fun talking about all the cool money people and money stuff that's going on in those towns and like FinTech in each of those towns. Mm-hmm. TIAA is with us. They're bringing on, we're not going to talk about TIA at all. We're going to talk about these people that are difference makers in the community because TIA is a, uh, they're a nonprofit and they work with people that work for hospitals. Like a lot of your audience might have TIA as their stuff. Yeah. As their 401ks or 403bs. Yeah. And so they're going to point to some doctor in the community or they're going to point to some difference maker in the community. And we're going to profile those people on these shows. And at the same time, we might get a call from mom. Uh, my mom's oh, name. Hey. Yeah. My mom's neighbor, Doug is going to be with us. We're going to have like a tonight show band, a stacking Benjamin show band. You guys really it, are moving up. 
I know the band couldn't fit in the basement, so it's like (laughs) you finally got time. Well, what's cool is it's a local band. So what's funny is in Kansas City, and I'll go over my dates in a second, Kansas City, it's going to be Tracy Phobes, who's the the Penny Pinchin Mama. Uh, She's got this awesome, huge blog in Kansas City. She's going to be on the show where her son is a guitar savant, and he's 11 years old. And in Kansas City, he's going to be our band. We have an 11-year-old kid. In, he's going to carry the show is what you're telling me. He's totally going to carry it. It's going to be super cool. In, in Orlando, it's going to be Miranda Marquid on the tambourine. She's a big blogger. Uh, Harlan Landis, who's the founder of the Plutus Awards, mm-hmm. which are big personal finance awards. He's going to play. I didn't know what instruments he playing. Andrew Wang, who does Inspired Money, he's going to play guitar. Like, they're our band. The mm-hmm. dude who does our t-shirts is our band in, in Detroit. So, uh, the dates. It's going to be Orlando, uh, September 25th. At the Improv, I can't believe we're playing the Improv, by the way. And then October 9th, we're playing the Improv again in Kansas City. And by the way, I went to that room. This room scares the hell out of me. It's beautiful. It's in like this beautiful outdoor shopping mall, like high-end shopping mall. Mm -hmm. And it's this swanky place, and we're going to be playing it. So the Improv on the 9th. And then two weeks and one day later, we'll be in what they call Fabulous Ferndale, just north of Detroit, at a place called Go comedy improv theater and another small fun intimate comedy venue so bringing the comedy show to those three cities 10 bucks by the way ryan is the tickets that's it 10 bucks. i almost i almost pay you one 10 bucks right now i can't <laughs> go though we're actually so i don't know if you actually know my wife's from kansas city so like we're actually going back for her brother-in-law's wedding uh but not during unfortunately not during oh. the times that you're there i wish I'll tell you what's cool about, I, I could talk about what's going on each of these shows, because if you go to stackybedjamins.com forward slash tour, we're updating the lineup and you'll see that we're doing this, 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 like 15 things on every show, like a normal Stacky Benjamins episode. But we, oh, awesome. but one thing we're doing in Kansas city that you know of, which is MBKC bank has a FinTech startup, a FinTech accelerator mm-hmm. where they're working with these FinTech companies. We're going to have the guy that runs that, uh, Zach Pettit who is going to show us five of these people and what they're doing. Like you're going to get to see these FinTech things that'll be on your phone coming soon, Mm -hmm. but you're going to see them ahead of time. If you're one of our guests in Kansas city, man, I wish I could make it to there. And so you're out in Orlando, you're out in Kansas city and you're out in Detroit, in Detroit. Yeah. Places. Okay. Three cities. The Beatles probably went to when they hit America. I'm sure. Yeah. You guys are just like the Beatles or not (laughs) or nothing close. It's a theory. Could be a bad one. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much for being on. I'll make sure I link in the show notes. Awesome talking with you. It's an honor and a privilege. So thank you so much again for being on. Well, it's an honor for me to be on, man. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. So we're going to be starting a new segment here called The Journal Club, where we're going to highlight one awesome article on the web that needs to be included in your weekly readings. So let's jump right in. Today, we're going to be discussing an article that was posted on the site xrayvision.com, X-R-A-Y-V-S-N.com, titled, Your Financial Evolution, the Investment Policy Statement. In it, the author discusses what an investment policy statement, or IPS for short, is, and why it's a good idea to actually write one. And I quote, an IPS serves as a written representation of your financial or investing objectives and the various strategies you are employing to actually achieve them. This is an added benefit of providing a guideline to errors in the event that you're untimely demise and allows them to continue this investment philosophy without missing a beat. This document serves as a, an emotional stabilizer during market upturns and downturns. A good IPS will prevent you from chasing the market or abandoning the market by having a certain set of parameters in place ahead of time. That's the key part, ahead of time, of what actions to take in a given scenario. The ideal time to create an IPS is before you have too much skin in the game uh, investment-wise so that you don't have undue prejudice from past investment returns. Very wise. An IPS can be sorted by time frame. This could be short, medium, long-term. It it includes asset allocation, rebalancing criteria, contribution rates into different investment vehicles. It's a non-binding document that prevents you from making these knee-jerk reactions when the markets move and should be modified when changes occur in your life. And what I really like in this article, and it's, it's short, it's to the point, but it covers an area that in finance is typically overlooked. And in my experience, 
I see that too many people just are investing based on reactions or based on their gut instead of actually using discipline. The number one thing that you can do for yourself as an investor is apply discipline to your investment strategy. And that's where an IPS can come in and help with that. And it's, it's very basic or, or could be as detailed as you like. And it should cover how you're going to invest your money and at what rate and should explain in detail your investing objectives. Beyond that, it's, it's up to you to decide how much you want to include or, or not to include. I find it helpful to put details out like, you know, what various accounts will actually be managed and what percentage of, let's say, ABC fund or what percentage in the XYZ fund, along with the expectation of how much you're actually going to invest or contribute each year or, or month. Your contribution rate is so important to your overall financial health that it really belongs here to serve as a reminder of what you should be doing. I'd also include a short paragraph as to why you are investing. What is the goal? Never lose sight of your goals. With more emotion behind that savings and your investing, you're more likely to achieve those goals. So please remember that. X-Ray Vision, thanks for showing us how to do it. I'll link to in the show notes. Great job. That was an awesome episode with Joe at Stacking Benjamins, don't you think? We talked about all sorts of ways to stretch your stash, from the spending temptation giving you regret whiplash to money talks. By the way, check out the show with El Martinez, where we're talking about getting financially frisky over at financialresidency.com. It's a good one. To physician stereotypes and empty pocket syndrome. And of course, the student debt world takeover. Oh yeah, we also talked about saving 15% or more by switching to Geico for car insurance. No, I I mean, really, I think I actually saved like 50%. A quick community update. Our community is growing almost a thousand members in our Facebook group. If you haven't joined, you're missing out on all the amazing conversations that we're having off air. So join us at financialresidency.com slash community. Hey listeners, listen up real quick. As your host of the Financial Residency Podcast, I'm not an attorney, a psychic, nor do I play one on TV. I'm glad you're here, and I'm really excited that you're excited about your finances. There's no purchase necessary to win, but what you do need to know is that your money decisions should be talked through with someone knowledgeable about your situation. That person isn't me unless you're already a client, then that's a different story. So consult your attorney, CPA, or heck me, a fee-only financial planner to help you get on your feet the right way. Next week, we have a great show planned with our special guest, PT Money. Can't wait. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.